Apollo 11 took off carrying the first human beings to the moon. At that time, President Nixon asked his speechwriter, William Sapphire, to pen two different speeches. One if the mission was successful, and one entitled, In the Event of a Moon Disaster. The plan was that if anything went wrong with the moon mission, that Nixon would read this speech on the TV. The radio communications with Neil Armstrong and his crew would be cut off. A minister would then commend their souls to the, quote, deepest of the deep. And the astronauts would be left to die on the moon. Now, that's not what happened. On July 20th, 1969, with less than 30 seconds left of fuel, Commander Neil Armstrong guided the lunar lander to the moon's surface safely. And after their return to Earth, the astronauts were greatly celebrated with parades and dinners. President Nixon even gave them, all three of them, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It was literally a worldwide celebration. The human race had just accomplished the greatest technological achievement in history. When Jesus Christ splashed down back on the shores of heaven after his mission, the most dangerous and most important mission of all time, an amazing celebration occurred. He had just faced every temptation and never gave in to sin. He stood against the intense hatred of people and their mocking, and yet he didn't call angels, legions of angels, to come and save him. But he willingly obeyed God and fulfilled his mission in giving his life as a sacrifice so that we could have a relationship with God. He conquered sin, defeated Satan, destroyed death. Now he returned in victory to the Father and and to his home. And as Paul writes in Ephesians, God seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. He's exalted. He's actually reigning. What difference does that make to you and me? He's at the right hand of God. Okay. What does it mean that Christ is at the right hand of God the Father? What does it mean that Christ was ex- is exalted and living and powerful. That's the lens through which we're going to look at chapter 41 today. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the greed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. 
and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and he called for all the magicians in Egypt and its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed one night, the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as in the beginning." Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears of corn in one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there is no one who can explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh that he, what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shorten, shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to anoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food to these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities. He put on every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it. For it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born of Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread all over the land... Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was so severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. In his book, Jesus in the Old Testament, Ian Duguid says this, The scriptures are not generally a message about Jesus. Jesus specifically told his disciples the central focus of the entire Old Testament is the suffering, his resurrection, and the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. The Old Testament, therefore, is a book on whom every page is designed to unfold for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. In these last 57 verses, we find the gospel of Jesus Christ. My mother, when I was young, used to fill the coffee tables with big books that we were allowed to leaf through. And one of the books I remember most was this humongous coffee table book, thick on Michelangelo. And I used to sit on the floor and leaf through it. And right in the middle of it was a, was a three-page fold-out. 
of the Sistine Chapel. And I used to go to that book and open it, and I remember it would open, and you'd see partially the Sistine Chapel. And then you'd take this great leaf, and you'd flip it over, and there it was in all its glory. If you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel, you look up, and you see an amazing work of art dedicated to God. And today, before us, we have the, a final leaf being opened in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leaf, when folded out, is Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation. His, what we were just reading in Philippians 2, his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. We are at the culmination of, of four chapters of, Jesus, of Joseph's life. The 22 years or so before his, Egypt's, his brothers uh, show up in Egypt. And as we fold them out, we can readily see the parallels between Jesus Christ's life and Joseph's life from peak to pit to peak. Back in chapter 37, we, saw, we meet Joseph for the first time, and he's on the peak, isn't he? He's Jacob's favorite son. He's given this amazing robe that really just cries out inheritance. He is given the cushy life. He doesn't have to work like his brothers do. He's the apple of Jacob's eye. He had it all. But then comes the pit. His brothers threw him literally into a pit, didn't they, in Canaan. They threw him into a pit, it says. And then they sold him into slavery. He ended up in Potiphar's house, and that's chapter 39. And Joseph had really, we think, hit bottom but it gets worse. He is accused falsely of adultery. He's thrown into a pit dungeon. And we looked at that last week in chapter 40. And that's where God's word left him. And here we unfold that third leaf and here we see that he is elevated. He is exalted to the right hand of King Pharaoh. From peak to pit to peak again. And that's exactly the trajectory of Jesus Christ's life. That's exactly the trajectory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. From peak to pit to peak. We've read about it in Philippians 2, who being the very nature of God. Jesus was at the peak. He was God's only begotten. He was God's only son whom he loved. The apple of God the Father's eye. And then comes the pit, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming human. J.I. Packer writes, The Almighty appeared on earth, as a helpless human baby needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child, the more you think about it, he writes, the more staggering it gets. That is pretty staggering. We don't ponder that too often, do we? And then the further pit of his torture and mockery and death, even death on a cross, the most shame-filled way to die. I've mentioned this before. Most, most painters are afraid to show Jesus naked on the cross when his garments were ripped from him. 
We're even scared to see that shame in a picture, and yet he hung there naked, dying. But then he returned to the peak, and that's what the rest of Philippians tells us. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now when I read that, does it sound familiar? It should. We just read similar language right here in chapter 41. Joseph has been called to the court and interprets Pharaoh's dreams and outlines a plan for survival. And Pharaoh gives Joseph the position of overseer, gives him the position of of completing that plan. And it says in verses 40 through 44, he was put into the position second only to Pharaoh. That Joseph's exaltation and power foreshadows Christ. The language even. You shall be over all my house and all my people. I've set you over all the land. Pharaoh exalted him to the highest place. Power second to none. He gave him symbols of that power, a signet ring, and new clothing, and a necklace, to ride in a chariot, a symbol of power in that age. That nothing, he says, could be done in Egypt. No, no foot laid down, no hand grasping anything without Joseph's permission. Complete and utter powerful sovereignty. Carrie and I are watching The Crown for the first time. Many of you have probably seen that, so don't spoil it for me. In one of the early episodes, there's an amazing scene where Elizabeth's uncle Edward, who abdicated the throne 17 years prior in order to marry divorced woman Wallace Simpson, they're watching, Edward is watching from America on the TV, Elizabeth's coronation. And he has a lot of his friends there. And, and the scene is switching back and forth from Edward watching the coronation on TV to us seeing the coronation live. And at one point in the coronation, the TV screen that Edward and his friends are watching on fades to a still image. Kind of a blank image. And the Americans ask, what's going on? They ask Edward. He knows. What's going on? And Edward pauses, and as he stares at the screen, he explains she is being anointed with holy oil on her head, over her heart, and on her hands. And they ask, the Americans in the background, why can't we see that? And he says, because we're mere mortals. The crown is placed on her head and all of Westminster Abbey cries out, God save the queen. And then back in America, the scene is the Americans laughing and mocking and Edward is cajoling and going along. But then there's a moment when he is looking at the screen and you see his reflection in the screen and he's just staring at the screen. And one of the Americans says, says in the background, to think you turned all that down 
a chance to be God. As the episode closes, his wife, Wallace Simpson, is looking out the window at Edward, who's playing the bagpipes outside. And the camera pans around, and he's playing the bagpipes, and he's weeping. It's really quite a poignant scene. He realizes what he gave up. He realizes that he gave up utter and complete sovereignty. Christ's exaltations, exaltation to the right hand of God the Father means that he has complete and utter sovereignty. Total power. Right now, right now, William Hendrickson writes, as king, of having, as king, having by his death, resurrection, and ascension achieved and displayed his triumph over his enemies, listen to this, he now holds in his hands the reins of the universe and rules all things in the interest of his church. That's personal. Think about that a moment. Complete and utter power and his main focus is using that for the interests of us. Jesus in Matthew 28 said as much when he said to his disciples, all power and authority is given unto me, therefore go. He preceded the Great Commission with I have complete and utter power. That should be a huge confidence boost for them going out. The implications of that should be felt in our lives. I mean, in our evangelism. In how we live our lives out loud for Jesus Christ in the workplace, in front of our friends, in front of our family. I include me in this when I say I am timid to live for Jesus Christ out loud. Second Timothy, Paul writes to him, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. He's given us a spirit of power. The confidence to proclaim the gospel comes in part, in part, from knowing in your heart of hearts that Jesus is exalted and at the right hand of God. Joseph wasn't timid. You see this all over this chapter. When he's called to Pharaoh's court, And he says, oh, you can interpret dreams. Look at what he says in in verse 16. It is not me. God will give Pharaoh the interpretation. Look down at verse 25 when Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed. Further in 28, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. In verse 32, when he says about the two dreams that they are fixed by God and God will surely bring this about. 
I hope you realize how dangerous what Joseph was saying was. Pharaoh was God. Pharaoh was divine. He believed it. His people believed it. And here he is standing at the court, fresh from the pit, saying, God, you're not God. What incredible bravery that took. What amazing confidence. And we have trouble mentioning the name of Jesus in public. I have trouble. I think we have to remember that Jesus is exalted. I think that's one of the powerful courage flames in our life. He holds in his hands the reins of the universe and rules all things in the interest of his church. I don't know who said it. There was a famous evangelical, I don't know who it was, who came back from a trip in Europe and said, I just returned from the future of Christianity in the United States. That's what we're told is the trajectory of Christ's church in the West. Nominalism, death. If we believe that Christ is exalted and he has the power the utter sovereign power, we shouldn't listen to that. Christ is exalted to the position of power, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's backed up by the sovereignty of Jesus Christ himself. Christ holds in his hands the reins of the universe and rules all things in the interest of his church. Do you believe it? Secondly, Joseph's exaltation foreshadows Jesus in his role as intercessor. Pharaoh's dreams come true in chapter 41. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And in verse 55, we read this. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says, you do. Joseph's role was as a powerful intercessor. Joseph's role was, was one that he was the one the people were to go to, not Pharaoh. He is the one that the people were to bring their need to, not Pharaoh. Joseph was the one that was going to intercede on the people's behalf. The book of Hebrews kind of lays this out for us in Jesus' life. In chapter 7 we read, Now there have been many whose priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever... He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede on their behalf. Such a high priest meets our need.
That's what Jesus is doing right now at the right hand of God. Interceding for us. And I don't know if you've thought a lot about Christ's role of intercessor, but one of its chief ends, one of its chief purposes is to assuage our guilt. There's basically two ways, two, two pole, poles, if you will, that people fall into where sin is concerned. They either minimize it, and it's not that bad of a thing, and that's how they deal with it. There's the equally destructive pole of the guilt of the sin crushing you. It just being a weight that, that is, you, you can hardly put one foot in front of the other. You're so guilty. Because as we know, there's, there's two groups of people in the world, right? There's sinners, and there's forgiven sinners. Just two categories. Repentant sinners. But people of God, we're still sinning. And there can be a tremendous amount of guilt that can crush you. But there is a work that Christ does right now that gives you comfort, that gives me comfort when I am crushed with guilt over my sin. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, writes, If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks on the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, don't misunderstand what is being said there. Jesus is not pleading to God the Father to forgive our sins. Let me say that again. Jesus is not pleading to God the Father to forgive our sins. Our sins, in other words, don't need constant atoning for. We read over and over in the New Testament, it is once and for all finished. It is finished, he cried. It is done. Your sins, if you're a Christian, are forgiven past, which we get, present, which is harder, future, all. Now, neither should this create a picture of God, the Father, who is bent against us in heaven. Because we can read those verses and begin to think, well, hold on, there's a court scene going on here. And apparently, Jesus is trying to convince God the Father to forgive us. You have to remember that God is one. It was God the Father's plan from the very beginning. I love what D.A. Carson writes about this. He says, It is utterly mistaken to picture God the Father standing over us in judgment and potential wrath, while the Son, far more loving and approachable, speaks to the Father on our behalf, and conjoles him into begrudgingly forgiving us. In other words, the image of Christ's intercession must not be teased out to suggest he is talking the Father into doing something the Father doesn't want to do. Or that he has to remind the Father of the significance of the cross. The truth, he writes, is more complex and more glorious. The entire intercessory ministry of the exalted Christ is by design by the triune God 
its purpose is laid out in the boldest terms. How safe the status is of Christ's blood-bought children. So in other words, Jesus is not interceding for us in a courtroom scene where God is against us and he has to be convinced. No, the courtroom metaphor on intercession is not to convince God the Father of our innocence. It's actually to convince us of our innocence. The courtroom scene looks much more like this. Satan is at the prosecutor's table, and you are at the defense table with Jesus defending you. And you're both before God the Father. Satan is constantly turned towards you and is accusing you, is bringing back the reasons why you should doubt your innocence. He's pointing at us, condemning us, and saying things like, you don't really want to be in church, you faker. How can you take communion today after what you did this week? Last week. Today. How can you say you love your wife when you said such things? When you look at other women like that? How can you say you're a Christian when you you say such vile things in your mind? With your mouth. How can you possibly ask for forgiveness for that same sin again? Do you hear those voices? That's the accuser. That's Diabolos. You see, there are times in each of our lives when that voice of the accuser in the courtroom gets really loud. And we start believing it. Our eyes are fixed on Satan, the father of lies. And at those precise moments in that courtroom, we are told in Scripture to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our sins. In other words, if you want to extend the metaphor, you are to turn away from listening to Satan's lies and you turn and you look at a different scene. You look at Christ and you look at the interchange between God the Father and Christ and God the Father is smiling and pointing to Christ and Christ opens up his hands and says, my hands. He shows you his feet. He shows you his side. And it's at that moment that you're reminded that you're forgiven. That you're innocent. The accuser's voice fades away. And you're looking at the author and perfecter of your faith. Spurgeon said, keep your eyes simply on him. His death, his suffering, his merits, his glories, his intercession. 
Be fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him. He will never fail you. The final way Jesus' exaltation foreshadows Christ is that Joseph saved his people. Joseph saved his people. Look at verses 55, 56, and 57. Pharaoh says, Go to Joseph and do what he says. It says, So when the famine was spread all over the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was so severe in the land. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over the whole earth. Wonderful theologian Sidney Gudanius wrote, As Joseph was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh who ruled the king of Egypt, so Jesus was exalted. As all were commanded to bow the knee to Joseph, so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. As Joseph with bread saved many people, so Jesus, the bread of life, saved many people from eternal death. Joseph's plan was to provide bread. So was Jesus's. That was the plan all along. From Melchizedek coming out and bringing bread and wine to Abraham to the manna in the wilderness, saving and feeding his people. From Joseph feeding and sustaining the people of Egypt to Jesus In John chapter 6, feeding the 5,000. If you remember that chapter, after he feeds the 5,000, he talks to the people. And I I want to read to you what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty again. For my Father's will is that anyone who comes and looks to the Son and believes has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. I, he said, pointing to his body, am the bread of life. I tell you the truth, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Jesus fulfilled what Joseph did, what Melchizedek did, He was the manna that came down from heaven. And he wants us to remember that salvation comes through him. And he gave us this table for that reason. So that we can remember that we are saved, we are innocent, we are bought. And to turn away from that accuser and those voices that we all hear in our minds and hearts. And fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's take a few moments now before we take these elements and remember the salvation that we have to come before God and give him praise and come before God and and confess. This is a perfect time to come before God and confess to him your sins. Let's take a moment.